Hello everyone and welcome to another BAFTA online event. My name is Ian Hayden-Smith and I'm here to, today to chat with some of the people behind the utterly delightful um, For Kids and It. Before we get going, just so you know, if you want closed captioning, you can go to the button down at the bottom of the screen, press that and you will get it. Also, because we're live, you can send in questions. You'll see the Q&A button again at the bottom. Just press on that, write your questions, and we will get through as many as we possibly can in the time we have. I'm delighted to welcome the producer of the film, Julie Baines. Hi, Julie. Hi, Ian. Thank you. And also the director of the film, Andy De Emini. Hi, Andy. Hi. Nice to see you, Ian. Okay, let's just talk about the genesis of the film, because I know it's something that has uh, been in gestation for a very, very long time indeed, Julie. Yeah, I think it started in about uh, about eight years ago when um, Anne Brogan, who is um, a prolific and excellent producer of children's television, came to me with the manuscript of uh, a new book by Jacqueline Wilson called Four Children and It. She asked me to have a read of it and see if it could make a film, uh, which I did. And I said, yeah, this is a film. Uh, we need to do make some enhancements to it, but I can see this really being a really beautiful film. So right from the outset, we uh, decided to work together because she's an expert in children's audiences and I've done a few films. So um, we optioned the novel together and uh, started on our journey looking for a writer, developing the project right through to now and we're still carrying on. So you mentioned this idea that you knew it could be a film. What, what specifically was it when you read it the first time that you knew there was something there? I think it was a very, it's a very um, human, lovely family story that kids could relate to. Um, but it had so many adventurous things in it that you could actually do something with in terms of making them like really visually spectacular. Um, so it just felt that it could be a real big screen experience as, as opposed to perhaps making a television production. I mean, most of, um, all of Jacqueline's productions so far, all the productions of Jacqueline's books that have been adapted so far, with the exception of Hetty Feather, have um, been on television. And Hetty was also in the theatre. Um, and I think that's because her stories are quite contained and um, almost like little kitchen sink dramas for kids, really, about real life. Whereas this one had some extra elements to those lovely stories that she writes that, that kids adore that um, enabled us to do something much bigger with it and much more cinematic. I'll come back to the development of the script in a moment, but Andy, can you, you came on uh, a couple of years later. Can you talk about your attraction to it and what it was that made you decide you wanted to be involved? Um, I think the, I've got grown up daughters myself, so we had a house full of Jacqueline Wilson books as they grew up. Um, I think for me, it was the marriage of her sort of intimate sort of social dysfunctional families and their structure and the, the nitty gritty of real life mixed with then the fantasy that came with the bigger story um, and the magic and all these elements and the mix of the two I thought was fascinating and uh, and very touching and I like that you know the emotional heart you get with Jacqueline's work um, of real people and real families and affections mix that with these, these bigger elements of the story gave it sort of epic quality so it was very attractive as a film and lots of great challenges along the way you know 
children so, and everything else. So it, it, yeah, it had a lot of lot going for it from my point of view. So um, already Jacqueline's book is um, taking E. Nesbitt's original story and updating it, but, but the film itself takes Jacqueline's story and brings extra elements into it. Um, let, let's talk about the family first, because the, the, the composite of the family changed, didn't it? Well, we wanted to make it very um, appropriate for families now. And um, I think it was great that we were able to cast it completely freely. And we found some amazing kids. I thought those kids were brilliant. Um, we did decide to make one of the families American in order to expand the marketplace for the, the potential audience for the film, to make it a more global film. So that was a very conscious decision to make one family American for sure, because they're not in the book. Um, in the book, uh, the parents already married and we decided to go a different route with that and sort of start at an earlier point in their relationship. Um, and then the biggest change is that as a, a cinematic experience, it lacked jeopardy. So we introduced the villain to the piece, who is Tristan Trent, played by Russell Brand. And it's great because uh, I th think that's the thing that, that kind of powers it along, as well as this, this fantasy element. Um, Andy, you've, you've, you've got a meaty antagonist. <laughs> well, he's, he's great. I mean, it, in, a, in a family film like this with a you know, child leads, it's great to have an arch baddie that you can really enjoy. And he's such good fun. So it's not, I mean, there is, a, there is jeopardy, but it's never too dark. I mean, his aims are, you know, fairly clear. Um, and, I, and yeah, he was great. And so with someone like Russell, you, you know what you can play with. I mean, having said that, it's very unpredictable, but, um, <laughs> you know, he just uh, will take it and run, which is great. And we, you know, we wanted to enjoy that and the kids enjoy the, watching this character play out. And the kids on set, you know, were often on the floor with laughter. So it was hard to contain, but yeah, very good. It was terrific. And it was a great addition to the story or else it, it's too internal and this gave an ex exterior factor to the story, something for them to fight against and work together with. So uh, it was a, a useful component to get the bigger story going. Part of me did actually wonder as well um, if, if Russell took the role because finally he could star in a scene that, in which his pants actually catch fire. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so great that, that that, I mean, that goes back to silent cinema and it still works as a visual gag. Yeah, no, it's great. And he, he, uh, Ultimately, he's a comedian, you know, lots of yeah. other things about him, but at the bottom, the core bone is comedy. And so, you know, people like that will look for those moments, you know. We, we, we laugh for ages about trying to get the idea of an actual moustache twiddling at one stage as well, which we did at one point. So, you know, he's a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I think he saw the potential in that, that role for what the fun he could have. Yeah. Julie. The other thing about Russell is that um, we had uh, we had quite a do at the point where we were filming the bit where his pants went on fire, uh, because the day before he decided that he wanted to do the stunt himself, and bearing in mind just the day before is not quite enough notice to waterproof all these beautiful suits that we've had made for him that are now going to go on fire. It was uh, it was an interesting one. In the end, I persuaded him it was such a good idea, really, but. <laughs> Yes, he was quite good. I think once we got into the nitty gritty of having flammable gel all over your you know, bottom half, he did <laughs> slightly wane on the idea. <laughs> you could see why a stuntman was a good idea. 
<laughs> um, you've, you've partly answered this question, but uh, we've just had a question come in from Tommy Jessup um, talking about both Russell Brand and Michael Caine on set. Um, they're, they're guessing that you pretty much laughed a lot. Yeah, we did. We, it was, they were all very separate in that we, we shot with Michael for three or four days um, in, in isolation. We shot him in advance so that the, we had a voice and something for the children to play against. And he was lovely. I mean, he got so enchanted by the story. He was really into it and loving it. And then Russell was, uh, yeah, on set we did laugh a lot. Uh, and there were quite a lot of points where it just went on and on and on. I do remember one point, even the cameraman sort of struggling to keep holding the camera. We were spinning on Americans, I seem to remember, on the edge of a cliff. And he's just riffing on different things against Americans. Uh, and, and the scripture line is what's in is about, uh, you know, thought she had a speech impediment. And he just ran on and on and on. And we hit in all sorts of areas, some quite dark spots. And, and the children gradually fell over laughing one by one until he's there on his own and everybody sort of sat down or lay down just laughing. And he's going on and on and on, which is great. And, he, you know, he's not precious and he'll play and throw things in and keep them or not, you know. But yes, we did laugh a lot. But the problem with him was also that he, he just couldn't stop improvising. And every take he improvised with something different. <laughs> and it was always hysterical, but quite frankly, some of it you couldn't use in a children's film. The kids were quite interesting because they, most of them hadn't really been on a set before. So him going off the script and down an alley of something else was all quite fascinating from their point of view. And they just play along. You know, you could see some of the adult actors going, what? Where are we going? What's happening? You know, but um, he was very entertaining. And they, yeah, they went with it quite easily. But what's, what's quite lovely, sorry, go ahead, Julie. The, kid, the kids absolutely adored him. And they actually cried when he left. I, I get the feeling that I can imagine he's like the naughty uncle on set. Um, what's great though, watching the film is that he is, the, he does bring that anarchic, like vital energy to all the roles that he plays. Um, and sometimes that needs to be larger than life in order to, to fill up the screen. What's really lovely about this is that you never in any single scene feel that Russell is playing this as large as he possibly can. It's always at the service of the main characters, the children. Yeah. Yes, he, he, I think he's got a good gauge of where he had and he can play it right up there if you need it as well. And he played very naturalistic and I think we were trying to find that balance of a three-dimensional character that had a, some real life and still engage with all the funny moments we've got with him and the, the gags he got. So I think we were striking a nice balance with him, but he's very in control of that, uh, which is interesting. I mean, he, you know, he loves to mess about. So often it just went silly and we went silly with it, but you know, um, it's very fluid and, and clever. So there's a great brain in there as well. So I think he's very self-aware of that performance and, and knows where he's pitching. So as long as you're clear where you want him to get to, he'll match with you very easily. But even outside of the scenes that he's in, there's, there's a real feeling of, of spontaneity that, that I found, again, won me over as I was watching the film. And I was just wondering, did that energy that he brought to it cross over into other scenes? And was there a sense with the children that having seen him, they can play around with the lines and, and um, work through maybe. scenes? But I, th I think it's important on a, a family film or a film with a lot of kids on set that you keep a very relaxed atmosphere there anyway so we were trying to encourage that this sense that we're all at work but the kids aren't really at work so we've got to make it fun and enjoyable and engage with them and, and so we had to keep quite a 
relaxed set. So it was quite a lot of silly going around. Whether that came from Russell or we infected him, I, I, a bit of vice versa, but uh, it was quite relaxed and that made it enjoyable before that. And I think we, we didn't do a lot of traditional filmmaking with this. We didn't have marks on the ground where people have got to stand or everything else. We kept it all very fluid kids just being so that was different at times and played around and they would do it in different way different times and we tried to keep a format that worked with that so i think there was a certain amount of although it was on it was scripted and we stayed with the script most of the time where and how and so on was definitely very variable so we kept a sort of fluid method going with that let's talk about the let's talk about the casting of um the younger actors in there first of all teddy rose who plays Roz. People will have previously seen her in Swallows and Amazons and, and Sided with Rosie. And I thought it was an incredibly clever casting move because of the scene we see at the beginning where she goes in and buys the book. And you've, you've got that, that link to the past. She has a look where you could imagine her actually starring in an older version of the film, as well as a slightly contemporary element to her. Yeah, she's got a fascinating face. I remember, um, I mean, I still think she's in a quandary as whether she's going to be an actor or a writer or a musician. So there wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't that sort of stage school hunger there or experience either. She wasn't teeth and smiled. She was very natural, you know. Um, and at times, you oh, when we, she first came in, she was a bit, yeah, whatever, you know. And, uh, but actually part of that was the fact that she was quite natural on camera as well. She, literally, at any point in the story, you can cut to her and she's really in the scene. A lot of kids are waiting for that next line and that next line and she's not, she's there. So you're always get, getting the right feeling from her at any point. Uh, I think that's just something naturally in her. She was very real, uh, which is great. And so, you know, we try to keep that style with everybody, but it wasn't too performed or you know, marked. But she was a very good find actually for us. Um, what about Ashley Billy and Ellie May? Did, did you find them quite quickly in the process? Um, Ashley we found first, I think, because um, we'd seen her in um, uh, Infinitely Polar Bear, which was a film she starred in as a little girl with um, Zoe Saldana and, um, help me out here, yeah. Mark Ruffalo, Mark Ruffalo's name. Yeah. Um, and uh, she was brilliant in that, but that was a few years before and she shot up quite a bit, um, but you know, that was kind of a slam dunk, really, because she was kind of obvious to us. And we needed, we knew we needed to bring an American actress from that, for that role from America. It was unlike, we did look here, but it, we always thought that it was pretty unlikely that we'd find someone strong enough here um, who was a natural American. On the other hand, with Ellie May Siame, who plays um, the little one, um, Maudie, she actually isn't American. Um, and she ended up doing an American accent. So, um, and I, she comes from Milton Keynes. So we found her, our casting director, uh, Colin Jones. Um, he um, did a massive trawl of actors, young actors, and, um, and came up with lots, but we chose her, she was amazing. Yeah, she was really, I mean, it, it, at five is a, a particular age, I think, that's very hard. And a lot of them, you know, they might with their in front of their mum on a camera be able to do some lines to camera but with strange people you know big bald-headed man in front of them can they talk and a lot of them couldn't really engage and you know Ellie May can really look at you and and, and engage so she was she was lovely actually um, and she did so well because we we shot the film with an English accent 
so that she could just be in performance terms, be in the film. And then we then coached her for a while after the film with an American coach. And then we went through line by line in a very kind of relaxed way. Uh, and she did a fantastic job of, of revoicing herself, American. Yeah. And the one we haven't mentioned is Billy, Billy. Billy Jenkins, yeah. who was brilliant and um, uh, a bundle of energy, I would say. Hard to slow him down, uh, but he, uh, he's, his claim to fame was that he was like Tom Cruise, who did his own stunts. <laughs> um, yeah. Miss Jacqueline Wilson, actually, uh, did she come on set and what, what did she say about the casting? Because obviously she probably has in her mind very specific image. So, to be of, fair, she was very... Uh, very nicely collaborative she was uh she you know she was abreast of the scripts as we developed them through and gave us thoughts and that sort of thing but very positive on on all the casting really she i think she knew this wasn't necessarily her area though she, these were her people so we you know we did run it all closely with her but she was very uh positive and collaborative actually she loved the cast yeah Jacqueline's been really fantastic all the way through. We've been very collaborative with her. We showed her the various drafts of the script at every point. Um, I think our biggest argument was our changing the title because we wanted to make it for kids in it and her book is for children in it. But in the end, um, we managed to uh, um, get her to understand why we wanted to change it because it was much more contemporary in film terms. and. Um, but um, she and she also totally understood why we wanted to change and enhance the script and bring in the villain. And she she's a very lovely and bright person, and she she understood the reasons. And you know we've really worked with her all the way through this. And then she came out for the shoot. The shoot was in Ireland, and she came out to do her part that was is in the final scene of the film where she's in the bookshop, where Roz is older. And then she stayed on for another couple of days. Um, and came to the set and observed and just absolutely adored it. Actually, can you both talk about the um, the decision to, to shoot in Ireland? Um, well, it's it's tricky because there are various financial reasons why you go to different places, and, and Ireland has a great tax break. But it's not just so. That was a that's probably more Julia's reason. Um, from my point of view, what's great with Dublin. I've shot there a few times before, is you can be sort of 15 to 20 minutes to the coast, and to great beautiful beaches like this. So it means you're not spending your precious production budget on putting people in hotels. You're using great crews that are in Dublin and they can all access these locations and go home every night. So it made everything much more doable. Whereas there aren't London, there are, you know, it's too far to get to any beaches and certainly Cornwall itself means you're putting the whole crew up. And we'd love to have shot there, it's very beautiful, but um, for those financial reasons, Ireland became a great option. And Guinness tastes better there than anywhere else in the whole world. <laughs> but obviously that's nothing to do with this. <laughs> no reason at all. Um, Julie, you were going to say something. Yeah, it, it actually wasn't a decision to go to Ireland for the tax credit at all, just because the tax credit's a bit higher than it is here. Um, it was really what the reason that Andy said. I mean, can you imagine? Well, I, this had a very large crew for an independent film because it was actually incredibly complicated with the creature and the children and the flying sequences and the helicopter and all those elements. Um, so our crew was typically at least 100. Uh, per day and can you imagine trying to take a hundred people in the middle of the summer to Cornwall 
I mean, I have to put them all in tents, I think, you know, I mean, where, where would they stay? And there's absolutely no infrastructure there at all. You'd have to take everything in and it just takes too long to get there. If you, if something breaks on your camera, you know, if you're not going to get it in half a day, it's going to take probably a day and a half to get to you. So it just wasn't practical from our point of view, being an independent film, um, you know, studio films tend to have much bigger budgets and it's, you know, there's there's more flexibility there. I'd love to have done it in Cornwall, but sadly it just wasn't practical for us. I was um, on a Zoom call the other day with the Cornish Film Festival, giving me quite a hard time about what we had shot in Cornwall. Oh, <laughs> I did try and explain the, uh, yeah, the basis to it. But it's tricky, it's, you know, very rarely you end up shooting the real thing. There are all so many other factors involved. But there we go. It, well, it would look so beautiful. Um, and that's one of the things I wanted to touch on, um, the cinematographer, John Pardew. Um, could you talk about the ideas that both of you had about the visual style? Because um, there's, there's this film, uh, I, I can't remember when I saw it when I was growing up, called Sammy's Super T-Shirt. It was one of the Children's Film Foundation films. And it has this idyllic summer look to it. And I, it, I just watching this film, it absolutely captured that moment of this sense of something being magical about being in this place on a holiday and, it's, it's and everything's hard, but a, There's a, a point at which you read this script and the penny finally drops that it all really evolves around sunsets. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when the wish ends. So if it's raining, it's rubbish. So you've got, and it wants, we wanted this sort of beautiful summer holiday, you know, that, of, of your childhood memories that's going wrong with this family falling apart and they, you know, finding their way together. Um, and then it all relied around sunsets. And, and to be fair, I think we got lucky with the weather was great. So we shot the right time of year to be there, but it, we had even just time of day, getting the sun low in the sky and trying to time that with the point in the scenes got very complicated. And to combine that with children's hours, working hours is like three dimensional chess, but it was, uh, yeah, it was great. And, and John, I've worked with John Locke quite a few times and he's, he's a beautiful lighting cameraman and uh embrace that challenge it's very hard when you you know this, everything's got to look beautiful but it's this time of day the sun is setting we're in the magic hour but we're shooting all day it's very complicated and he did a, a terrific job of pulling all those strands together so that when you watch the thing you don't you don't even notice really this looks that beautiful summer holiday and um, didn't you um didn't we need some sun rises as well and how many times did you go out and try to shoot those andy <laughs> <laughs> We, we, it, it, it's the wrong place in the world for sunsets at sea. So we were doing it in reverse and using sunrises. And we went out so many times. It's terrible. It was literally the very last morning of the very last day. We got there, and you don't know because you're getting there when it's dark, setting up, waiting. And, uh, and this fantastic sunrise happened that day. And we finally got the sort of three key beats we needed to tell the story or else we'd have been coming back and coming back. But yeah, it was, it was a tricky number. But it, it's a beautiful location there as well. And combine that with great weather, it really helps your, your you know, still a naturalistic look, but looking very beautiful. And you were talking about um, the shorter days, obviously working with uh, young actors. How long was the shoot? altogether uh 10 was it 10 weeks i think yeah um 10 weeks um and then there's you know little mordies in the every every scene virtually 
and she's only allowed to be on set for a couple of hours a day. So you have to be very careful in your planning. And we had doubles and all sorts to work around, but it was a, a complex piece in that respect. Each, not just the, the ages and the hours around to work, but how you deal with different ages. You know, a five-year-old, there was a point we hired a, you know, a, a big expensive intercity train and a station at night and hundreds of extras. And I remember Ellie, Ellie May turning around to me saying she didn't really like trains. She didn't want to go on a train. We're like panic. <laughs> there's bribery, there's everything coming out, anything to talk her in. Because about 45 minutes, we finally got her to go on the train. But then, you know, you've got other issues of, with the two 12-year-old girls. It's complicated as well. Billy is more about, you know, he's sort of, full of energy all the time so it's for him it's calming down and you've got different approaches to different ages which gets uh, quite a quite a tricky number combined with the age the hours they're allowed to be on set so we had to be we had to box cleverly really they, the kids also did that typical thing of sometimes falling out as well they were interestingly they were they were almost like a family to start with they became very close very fast and then they went on this journey of arguing and falling out and then getting back together again. And so we sort of had to live a bit through that one as well. But also what was quite um, surprising for us was that the hours that you were allowed to work the children in Ireland are more restrictive than in the UK. So that was a bit of a surprise to us to start with after we'd made the final decision that, yes, we were going to go and shoot there. So that made it even harder for us, Andy, didn't it? Because we had fewer hours across the day with them. And then the day that Russell left, uh, he, he was with us for five weeks and he left about two weeks before the end of the shoot. And um, he was always very generous and he brought an ice cream van to the set on the last afternoon when we were totally running out of time with the children and I literally arrived by the camera in the ice cream van with the siren blaring out and then handed out ice creams to everyone. And we're all going, no, we've only got 20 minutes left with this one and 45 minutes left with this one, but yeah. what can you do? <laughs> we were literally clocking people on and off set. You know, yeah. made, come on, say her line, quick, off, take her back. Um, so yeah, it's very clever. He did, Russell did, put Teddy's name on the ice cream van as well, I remember. <laughs> which it was her birthday, and he got it vinyled on the front of the ice cream van. Damn these generous superstars. <laughs> what can you do with them? Um, two people we haven't talked about yet is Paula Patton and, and Matthew Good. Could you talk about their involvement and, and how early they came into the enterprise? Paula came in um, as a, a recommendation from our sales agents in America. We always knew we wanted an American actress for the role. Um, and um, she was absolutely lovely. She had a six-year-old boy of her own. So, you know, she, she understood the script straight away and, and said yes very fast. Um, and then Matthew was... Um, Matthew had been attached at, uh, at an earlier point when we'd had other financing in place that fell through. Um, and then he came back right at the end and um, he, he was great too. So, uh, and he was in his element because he really loves playing golf and there were a lot of golf courses there. So. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the, um, the visual effects on the film because again, it's this amazing thing. You say this is a low budget film. It, it, there is not a moment you're watching it that you think that. Um, 
so first of all, with the, the creation of the, uh, the, the creature itself, I'm assuming that uh, Michael Caine at 87 did not go full Andy Serkis on this role. No, no, but we did shoot, um, it was top half only really. <laughs> so we filmed him uh, on several cameras at different sizes and to sort of gauge the face as well. And they then used his movements to work onto the creature. They then also enhanced that and that sort of thing as well. But it was fascinating, there's one point you could switch through on the edit from Michael talking in the corner to seeing the creature and the hand gestures that went and came with it would bounce across the two as they stole from him. So it's genuinely very close to his performance. It was really, really strong there. Um, and that was, uh, I suppose, our biggest challenge is bringing that creature to life. Um, and so we had a, a great design from um, Brian Froud and his wife and son, and they're, they're a little industry there making creatures. And uh, so they did the initial design, which was then translated across. Are you going to say something, Julie? Yeah, when we were trying to cast Michael Caine for the role, um, the question that kept coming back was, does he have to wear lycra and does he have to put spots on his face? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer was no, it was both of those. So could you, could you talk, talk about the combination of, uh, of visual effects and special effects for the creation? Of the yeah, it was, I suppose I've done a lot of puppets previously from sort of spitting image on and then uh, computer-generated creatures have moved on so far now and but we still wanted some of that performance so um, we started with a puppet actually um, we quickly realized we needed a three-dimensional creature in CG a computer-generated creature to, to do everything we needed in the story um, and so it was a sort of we had a puppet on set to keep the kids really engaged with it and we had a a robot version and we had a stunt version and we had a cutout version we had lots of different versions there and because we shot with Michael first we were we, I was very keen that we used his voice so we had his voice on set playing to the kids so we could have that natural interaction um, and I suppose it you know that was part of the challenge can you create a creature that people engage with that you feel is really there that has its own life and Brian created a great um, character for us and then bringing that to life you then when you build it in CG you've got to make create a, a whole skeleton and rig that works in the real world so uh, we had to build that the challenges of sand and I guess with all of these things we we broke them down far enough to try and run just throw money at it we were boxing cleverly where we could so we had a certain budget on the creature and we knew how much time and uh, on screen we had of him and needed of him and then the rest of the VFX we sort of broken down element by element the, the, the house collapsing was a challenge um, and it, literally even in the prep time of this film you know two or three years I was involved with it what you could do technically changed over that time you know fur got much better sand got much better so we were doing tests on these things along the way how do we make it feel like he can work under the sand um, the collapsing house was again, a, a, um, in particle terms, you let it happen and then adapted it. It wasn't animate every moment of the thing happening. So we, we were using certain clever elements coming through. We had a great VFX team. Um, what else was the flying? The flying was a, another great challenge. Something I would always found difficult was the, the wire work of flying and the limitations that has in where you can put the, the, the actors 
and how they move. So we used a new system with a robot arm where you mount, literally mount the child on a robot arm and that arm moves them around. Um, and I think we were the first or second people that got a license to do this with children. Okay. We use them on a few sort of big action films. I mean, the kids absolutely loved it. Can you imagine you've got this huge multi-million pound robot with a harness mounted on your back just throwing you around? You know, there was one point I had to keep bribing Ellie Mae. She could have another spin if she agreed to get off. <laughs> but, you, you know, another one, another one, another one. So, it was, no, it was great fun. So we that was an interesting thing because it changed the three-dimensional sense of the flying. We could move anywhere with, the, with them and they could move. And then we retrofitted the backgrounds to the locations we were already in. So we used drone shots, very fast drones, to create backgrounds that we could use with those plates. So it's sort of old tech and new tech at the same time. And uh, so there were a lot of, yeah, there were a lot of challenges along the way, uh, uh, putting those elements together, mixed with the children's hours and everything else. So it was a, yeah, challenge. Even that flying sequence, um, one of our biggest challenges with that is, we, so we, we hired this company called Robomoco and they were absolutely amazing. So they had to drive their extremely heavy robot over from, um, from the UK to Ireland. But then um, you needed a, like a, a massive um, area to be able to film in and no one had a green screen big enough for that. So we, we went through hours and hours and hours of deliberations on how to create this green screen and was it safe to put um, containers on top of each other and put the green screen on on the outside in fact that's what we did in the end Andy isn't it but it was such a dilemma because health and safety came into it big time as you can imagine and you're flying kids you know it, it was huge but we did it in the end and to make it extra hard we decided to do it outside so if it rained or anything we were completely Screwed. Um, but it did it did work incredibly well. It's the biggest screen screen I think I've ever seen. Uh, wrapped around, I think it were four, five, six layers of containers so that you could move the camera and them and get all around them for all the different angles we wanted to get to. And we had a floating screen as well. So it's yeah, it's a lot of planning. We storyboarded most of the film in the end, or certainly all of the effects and that sort of thing. And and that's, I suppose, the way from an indie, for an indie film to break down this sort of budget is to go through literally shot by shot. And the things that are too difficult or too expensive, we were finding other ways around. And you're rationalising to what you've got to spend. But prep was, you know, went on for quite a long time, which was good, and it meant we could maximise what we've got. And Julie, I gather you were particularly proud of the pink helicopter. I love the pink helico helicopter. I had, to, I had to fight for the pink helicopter in the end because we were so running out of money as, you know, the, a lot of these visual effects were very complicated. So inevitably they all cost a bit more money than has been estimated in the first place. But I so wanted that helicopter to be pink. Um, and there was a moment where it's like, sorry, we just can't afford it. And then, and also with the helicopter, is we had to have a different helicopter in Ireland. They take off in Ireland and they land at the O2, but they land in London. Um, and it's two different helicopters. So we had to get two helicopters the same. But of course, on the day when they turn out, they're not the same. And um, so I think just making them pink helped that, but the fact that they're actually not the same. Have a look at the film again, you'll see the helicopter's different. <laughs> Yeah. State do, do you remember, Julie, that, that day, I don't, this makes it sound a little bit um, cobbled together, but our, our pilot 
on the, the last day. The, the guy we'd initially booked couldn't do it or something. And we had a young pilot who had to take his test that morning because he had to be tested on different helicopters and he'd not flown this one. So he's like 23 or something and had to do his test that morning and then came straight from the test center with his helicopter for us to film at the O2 in London. <laughs> Instilling you with confidence. And yeah, I know, it was chaotic. But it, also, I think what was interesting, we had to go through this debate of how much it is to hire a helicopter and then how long it's taking to cover it in vinyl. <laughs> you know, if you went there and pieced bits on and we thought that would take three hours and that would cost it, yeah. So there are lots of balances you do and we couldn't throw money. So in the end, you, you find the, the best, cheapest way. But actually, um, we wanted to put a vinyl face of smash on the side. And we, told, no, we were told, no, you can't possibly do that. That's really, really dangerous. Because if it blows off in the wind, it could get caught up in the propeller. So at that point, we thought, well, obviously, that's not going to work at all, any kind of vinyl. So um, that's why, in, in the end, we ended up doing it as a visual effect. And we did manage to get Smash's face on the side as well, which was brilliant. Yeah. But again, you've got the, the added element that you've got some scenes filmed in London, which I'm, I'm sure can send any budget going sky high. Yeah, we, we came, I think we did a week in the end in London, just for those elements, um, which was, yeah. Uh, you have to join, there's lots of glue across the, the film like this from different spots and different ways. Um, and again, you prep it well, you can hopefully get across all these the, the different joins you've got. The O2 was a, a, certainly a bigger challenge because you've got a thing written into your script, big and large, that everyone's brought into. Right, now we've got to deliver the O2. <laughs> That's hard. But, um, and thankfully they were, they were quite happy to play with us. Actually, the O2 scene inside the O2 was one of our biggest challenges as well, wasn't it, Andy? Because we couldn't afford um, the, like the, the real O2 uh, in London. Um, and then there was a moment where the line producer came and said, well, you have to have this small theater um, inside and it just wouldn't have looked right at all. And then somehow we managed to find a way to make it work in the, the biggest theater we could find in Dublin. Um, but then also the, the whole thing about lighting the stage and how to make that work as though it's it is properly a concept and then the audience it was again that was something else that we spent a really long 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 time deliberating what is the best way to do this yeah. you know on, on our with our budget part of the difficulty of the, this nature of this story really is that you've got so much fantasy and you've got to fulfill these childhood dreams so you know if they're going to be a big pop star you can't then put them on a small stage with a couple of hundred people you it's got to look spectacular to fulfill their dream so you you can't pull back on a lot of these things actually which is certainly challenging. i think i seem to remember the o2 was having a big hole drilled in the middle but there was something there'd been some work right, yeah. and it was probably going to be too expensive as well and we went in the end to the o2 in dublin at a similar scale um but everything was yeah, not a little challenge. We, we employed a great lighting company, done lots of great gigs, who, and they realised we weren't quite, you know, we weren't doing a huge world tour. It was a one-off moment. They came and helped us up with a great rig. Um, and I'm, I'm sure it also helps having uh, Cheryl as uh, Coco Reigns. <laughs> yes, she was, uh, she was terrific. And very game for the day, it has to be said. Um, 
she was terrific actually and also uh, the the journey home uh on the train i gather that's where your cameo performance comes in julie oh me yeah i'm the train i'm the announcer on the train <laughs> and Peter, what fascinates me about i haven't got any money left by that point you see <laughs> What fascinates me about the film is piecing all these different elements together and it, it, moving, shifting between the, the reality of the, the family dynamic and how those relationships are developing, going into the fantasy sequence, is the way that you balance the humour throughout. I, I, I will say the, the film won me over the moment I saw the reference to Jaws in the sand, <laughs> which I thought was just wonderful. Um, but there is something about the humour because you've got, you've got this mysterious character in the centre, this, this, this fantasy character who is funny, but also has that playfulness. And then you're, you're also, you've also got the family dynamic, the humour of that. Was think, that easy to find that thing? No, well, I think for me that the emotional sort of heart and the, which I would encompass with the humour of the thing is where you really win people. Um, great special effects and able to keep telling the story. And they're, they're terrific in their own way. But if you haven't in the heart of that, in the middle of it, got really great characters you invest in and care about and their life then you you disengage so it was despite all the special effects and everything else we've got going on in the middle of it you're trying to create something that's really truthful and emotionally true with these characters and that i think that emotional truth often comes with humor and you can balance that out and do that sort of release valve of those over emotional moments with the humor and that balance very nice that's a combination of Julie's book, Simon's script, the performance we were aiming for and how to pull that together. But it's not getting too waylaid by the special effects as well. They're a hurdle to get through, but at the heart of it, if the performance is right and the emotional connection's right and the humour between these people is, is great, you'll engage with it. You know, and that's what will hopefully win over an audience. It's also, you've got that element of Alex Mackey's score and the use of certain songs. There, there was a moment where I actually did think Matthew Good was going to start rapping when he was driving the car, which sent a shiver <laughs> down my spine. But thankfully that didn't happen. Yeah. Julie. Can I just correct you on that? It's Anne Nikitin's score. Oh, sorry. And, um, and, and Alex Mackey was the editor, actually. Oh, apologies. And Anne's score was brilliant, actually. Um, yeah, there are little moments like that. Uh, David in the car going along to music that he's a little bit too cool for him. Um, they're the little observational moments I think they got so well in the script as well and, and Matthew really got it as well he knew he wasn't a bad dad or anything but he was just too nice and so he I think he got the right level to that very well that he's well-meaning and you loved him and liked him but you knew from the kids point of view they were still a bit embarrassed you know it was, uh, it was great and then the score the, yeah the score I think that Anne did was uh, terrific on this it had a scale that um, that so went from the domestic small emotional tight moments to big sweeping epic scale which was terrific and it does elevate the, the film massively the score is so good um we're gonna have to finish shortly but i just want to um talk about the film opening because obviously it was it was meant to open quite wide uh in this country but unfortunately the uh, the virus has sort of hampered that but what's amazing is that it, it went straight to premiere on Sky and the response to it has been really quite amazing. Yeah, I think I mean we I think we we're very lucky. Um, time well, lucky is the wrong word. Um, it, it was a good film to have with a captive audience, and I think um, it hopefully brought a bit of respite for a lot of parents <laughs> during this period of time as well. I, I mean, I've had messages from people who watched it endlessly. I know one couple of kids have had it on every day since this came out. 
I'm sure it's now driving those parents nuts, but it was a good, a good film for this sort of period, I think. Um, Julie, so, um, yeah, for you, after eight years, it must be great to see the response. I, we've had an amazing response actually and um, I, every day I'm getting more and more messages from people and some are people I know or some are you know people who are reporting people they know and also um, Anne and I got a really lovely note from Sky Cinema from the, the head of Sky Cinema, the director of Sky Cinema and um, just saying how thrilled they are with how it's doing and it's got five stars on Sky which is great and as Annie said, I've had loads of kids, families who have been watching it six times, seven times. But I think my, my favourite one so far is a six-year-old boy who said that he gave it a thousand stars out of five. <laughs> That's great, yeah. Brilliant. It, it um, to touch the right, the right. And it, I think it's a very positive film as well. You know, careful what you wish for as a theme within that, but, you know, finding what families are about and those sort of things. So it's got great themes and ideas going through it and it's that positivity at this point in time, I think is great for people. And what was the experience of like of watching it with the four leads the first time? Oh, great actually. They, um, yeah, they loved it. I, you know, I think suppose I never asked what they expected because they'd never seen themselves up and big. Ellie Mae was kind of wide eyed all the way through watching herself like 20 foot, on the screen um but they they certainly loved it yeah they may not they may be a biased audience but they definitely enjoyed it <laughs> Jacqueline um, too she she really really adored it and she's seen it about three times on the big screen now so yeah we're gonna have to draw this to a close and before we do go um obviously as we've just discussed um if you haven't seen the film yet it is available to watch on sky movies with regards to upcoming bafta events there are two that i want to draw your attention to that are on tomorrow night uh friday the 15th of may first of all at five o'clock there is a master a master class which i'll be hosting with the costume designer Ellen Morozhnik, who has designed everything from Wall Street and Fatal Attraction through to The Greatest Showman and Behind the Candelabra. And then at seven o'clock, there um, is a Q&A about the documentary Rebuilding Paradise, which is directed by Ron Howard. And he will be in conversation with the Paradise superintendent, the person who is in charge of the town when it burned down in 2018. They'll both be, that's Michelle John, and they'll both be chatting with Edith Bowman. Um, thank you very much to Sky for helping us organize this event. Also thank you to BAFTA, but most of all, thank you so much, Andy and Julie, for joining us today. Thank you. Great. Thank Bye you thank very much. much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us and remember you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.